Grace and peace to you from him who was and who is and who is to come, our Lord, our Savior, the King, Jesus. Today we are wrapping up our Lent series called Give Up. And we've talked about giving up some some pretty tough things, right? Giving up temptation, giving up self-reliance, giving up the love of comfort, giving up false security. And I think that probably to some extent we, we would all understand that we, you know, those are things that, yeah, on one level or another, in one way or another, I struggle with that. Yeah, temptation, that's a real thing, right? The love of comfort, huh? Yep. Uh, Self-reliance, yeah, I do that too. But what about when you have to give up something that you may not even realize you struggle with? In fact, I I would imagine that coming in here this morning, if I had told you that we're going to be talking about giving up opposition, you would have said, yeah, it's not really something I need, but thanks. I'll be happy to sit in there today. I hope you talk to somebody because that's not me. Because this morning we're talking about giving up opposition, and not just opposition to things in the world, but opposition to Jesus. So let's talk about opposition for just a moment. It means literally to be the opposite of, to be opposed to, right? And we live in a world where, where the, the current message that's being preached is tolerance. And they're tolerant of everything except the things that they are opposed to. And we live in a world where there are people who, who have a very black and white view of, of a lot of things. And maybe they say, you know, this is good and this is bad and I promote this, I support this, but I'm opposed to that simply because the political party that supports it or simply because the politician that put it out there. There are people who are personally opposed to things, well, sometimes because it's, not what's best for them. Maybe you have a food allergy and you're opposed to dairy or you're opposed to gluten because it makes you sick. That doesn't mean nobody else can have it, but but for me, I'm I'm opposed to it because I don't like getting sick. It's not what's best for me. And then maybe you're opposed to something because, well, you just just don't really trust it. I I know of a woman who she was opposed to banks because she simply just didn't trust them. The problem is she didn't trust her kids either. And when they sold her house after she passed away, the people who bought it found money under the carpet and in the wallpaper and up in the ceiling and everywhere in the house because she was opposed to banks. See, we can be opposed to a lot of different things, and actually the way that we oppose them can vary too, can't it? I mean, you can probably think of, when you think of opposition to something, you probably think of, of people who are loud and vocal. Maybe even you think of a, a rally against something. And there certainly is that loud, vocal component to opposition, but there's also a real quiet one. And there's the, the real active opposition, but then there's also the, the passive opposition. There's the, the, I'm personally going to promote against you. I'm going to work in, 
against you. And then there's just, well, I'm not going to support you. I'm not going to do what you say. And it's important that we wrap our heads around different ways that we oppose things. Because I think in our world, in our culture, opposition, it's very antagonistic, it's very loud, it's very vocal. But that isn't necessarily what we do, I hope, when it comes to God. But that doesn't mean we're necessarily lacking in our opposition, right? Because I'm guessing as you came in here today, again, you probably thought, that, that, that really isn't me. I, I don't yell, I hate you, God, every morning when I wake up. But do you praise him constantly, all the time? Do you, do you praise him when he allows things into your life that aren't what you want? Do you praise him when it seems like the world is spinning out of control? When things don't go the way you would think they should go, that this is the right way? Do you say, wow, you're, you're a good and gracious and wise God. You've got it. Or do you say, what in the world are you doing, God? See, there's different ways to oppose. And I, I think that probably we may not be on the active, loud, vocal end of things, but we definitely struggle when it comes to having a heart that doesn't just go along with what God says, that doesn't just do, that doesn't just trust, that doesn't just serve. And that brings us to our first takeaway this morning. It is, there it is, uh, because I'm a Christian, I want to think, I don't have any opposition to God. I, want, I don't want to think that I do. But the reality is, because I'm a sinner, I do oppose God. Because I have this part in my heart that is sinful by nature, it stands opposed, opposite to God. Because it is sinful, and God is not. And that's a harsh reality that we need to keep in mind as we listen to these words from Luke chapter 19 as Jesus rides into Jerusalem and, and we realize how dangerous opposition is in our hearts. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 19 beginning at verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. Now Jesus had shown over the last three years of his public ministry so many examples, so many glimpses that he is true God, that he is the promised Savior, that he is the fulfillment of God's promises. And now he is just five days before his fulfillment of his mission, his death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection three days later. Jesus, though, is going to give his disciples, again, one last just incredible glimpse that really only they knew about. 
that he is the promised Savior, that he is true God. I mean, can you imagine being, being these disciples? Think about it. If I said, hey, would you, would you run down to the corner and you're going to find this and it's going to be exactly like this. And when you find it and you pick it up and it looks like it's somebody else's and they say, hey, what are you doing taking my stuff? Just say, oh, don't worry, pastor needs it. It sounds kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? But that's what Jesus told these two disciples to do. Go to the village and when you walk in, you're going to find this donkey tied up there. Untie it and bring it. And if somebody says, what are you doing? Say, the Lord needs it. You got to wonder what was going through those two disciples' minds, don't you? Okay. I mean, they'd seen enough examples over three years that this should have been just like, all right, done, I'll do it. But you wonder if there was a little bit of, okay. And yet as they entered the village, what did they find? There's a donkey, just like Jesus said. And so, oh, okay, yep, this is, this is good. They start untying it. Oh, but here come the owners. Hey, what you doing? Uh, the Lord needs it? Oh, go ahead and take the donkey too, right? Who would have thought that that's what would happen? That somebody would just say, oh, sure, take my property. I don't know you. But that's what Jesus said would happen, and that's exactly what happened. This shouldn't have been a surprise, right? Because Jesus knew exactly what was waiting, and Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. Everything happened exactly the way he said. And then he gets on this donkey, and he rides into Jerusalem. Which doesn't maybe sound super crazy to us, but let me put it in in terms, in modern terms. Imagine that the winner of the next presidential election is headed to the Capitol for the inauguration, the swearing-in. And on, on the way, they stop the motorcade because there's a used car lot. And the president-elect hops out and walks over and, hey, there's a nice, nice car over in the corner. It's a 2003 Ford Taurus. I'll take that. It's a nice car. It's a dependable car, but it's not the car that the President of the United States shows up to an inauguration in, right? And then, on top of that, the, the salesperson says, well, well, somebody traded that in a couple of years ago, and it's actually just been sitting there. In fact, I'm not sure if it's even going to start. I'm not sure it's even going to run. Nobody's even test-driven it. I can't, I can't vouch for its safety. Oh, that's Okay. And the president hops in as the Secret Service freaks out, right? Because that's essentially what Jesus was doing. Jesus is the king of heaven and earth, and he's riding into the capital city, and everybody's hailing and praising him as a king. But he's not riding on a magnificent stallion. He's not in a gold-covered chariot. He's not in a, a litter that's carried by servants. He's on a donkey. And he's on a donkey that's never been ridden before. Now, I know a number of you have horses or animals or have in the past ridden. So you probably understand the significance of that, right? What happens to an animal that's never been ridden the first time that a human being hops on it? It doesn't react so well, right? What is this? I don't think so. 
And who knows then what's going to happen when Jesus hops on this donkey that's never been ridden. And who knows what's going to happen when Jesus hops on this donkey that's never been ridden and goes through this crowd of people that are all shouting and singing. If you've been around animals, you know that that's generally not a recipe for calm, right? Well, who knew what was going to happen? Jesus did. Jesus did because he's, he's God, because he knows everything, because he's God. We sometimes lose sight of that fact, but, but the Bible says that he knows how many hairs are on your head, are on your head, are on my head. He knows every single thing that's going to happen in your life before one of them came to be. Wow. That's amazing. And and so if, if God knows everything, if he, if he has this perfect knowledge and perfect wisdom and he holds everything all together and he lays it all out just beautifully and amazingly and perfectly that is best for us, well, that means that we should just absolutely listen to him. And we should just gladly do what he says. And we should just serve him joyfully. Right? problem is that's not so much what we do, is it? Instead, we, we question him. We challenge him. We really disagree. We don't like what he says about this or what he puts into our lives in this situation because that's not my plan, God. I don't think you understand. I, I've got this plan. And you should make it work by what I say, not the other way around. And all of a sudden, we've, we've pushed aside this, this knowledge, this trust that God knows everything, and he loves me, and he's making everything work for my good because we have a heart that's opposed to him. He says, this is my perfect plan, and we say, yeah, but that's not really what I want. And we have this problem of thinking that somehow it's okay for us to to deny him, to challenge him, to push back, to do what we want rather than what he says. And understand that's, that's pretty clear opposition. It's not maybe loud. It's not maybe yelling at him. I don't want to do what you want me to do. No, instead we just don't do it, do we? We're the rebellious teen that doesn't doesn't just slam the door. We just, I'm not going to do it. And you can't make me. So when those thoughts of opposition leap into your mind, when that desire to push back against what God says, against God's perfect plan, I want you to remember this. These words, this section, this Palm Sunday. Because it looks like Jesus is just... Nothing special. I mean, it, it, it doesn't seem like it's all that amazing, all that grand and glorious. He's riding on a donkey. But understand that, that looks are deceiving. That what we see on the surface is covering the glory of God. That God has taken on the flesh of a human being so that he can save us. That, that Jesus humbled himself. Nobody forced him to. Nobody said, all right, you're getting demoted this week. You have to go down to earth. 
that he chose, as we confess in the creed, to be conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He chose that. He chose to leave the eternal glory of heaven to come here for us so that he could die. And as we heard in Philippians 2, even even death on the cross, to humble himself in the in the most incredible, amazing, and gracious way so that he could be the Savior of you and me. So when you start to come up with opposition, when you hear what God says and you say, you know what, I don't like that. Remember this. Remember these words. Remember who Jesus is. Remember why he came. And give up your opposition and trust him. That brings us to our second takeaway this morning. That this is what God wants for me. He wants me to simply trust. Jesus is my king who humbled himself to save me. That isn't the only opposition though, is it? There's more to come, and we see that in the, the next verses, beginning at verse 36. As he, Jesus, went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Kind of a crazy thought, right? You take your coat off and put it on a, a dirt road so that a donkey can walk on it. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. See, this is a unique account from Jesus' earthly ministry. It's the only time in the the four Gospels where Jesus is allows people to openly praise him in his presence. Think of how many other times where, where Jesus would heal someone and they'd say, okay, but don't tell everyone. Even when he went up on that mountain and gave his three disciples a glimpse of his glory, right? And Moses and Elijah were there. What did he tell them? Don't tell the rest until after I've suffered and died and risen again. And the reason was because Jesus' time had not yet come to be exalted. This was his time as he humbled himself. But now as Jesus crests the hill of the Mount of Olives, looking down into the city, approaching Jerusalem, the time is near. The time for his suffering, the time for his death, the time for his being exalted. And so the people began to praise him, right? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then that 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 praise, did you hear it? it? It almost echoes the praise of the angels on his night of his birth. Glory in the highest. They threw their coats down. They praised him. They shouted praises from Scripture to him. And John tells us they cut branches from palm trees and were waving them. That's where Palm Sunday comes from. These people hailed, they praised Jesus as a king, and Jesus allowed it because his time was near. 
And as faithful Jews, these, this crowd, they knew their Old Testament scriptures, right? They knew the prophecy from Zechariah that we heard earlier, that the, the Savior, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to ride a donkey. Here he is. And Jewish folklore said that, that the Savior, the Messiah, was going to, uh, going to appear, going to arrive around the, or at the Passover. Well, Jesus was heading into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Here it is. Here he is. And they, they praise him. But did you notice why they praised him? In verse 37, it says, They began to joyfully, joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. They'd seen Jesus heal people with terminal illnesses. They'd seen him give sight back to those who were blind. They'd even seen him raise Lazarus from the dead after he'd been in the grave for three days. They had seen these miracles with their own eyes. And they were amazed. And here he is. Here is the Savior. Here he's come. They finally had someone who would, who would take care of them, who would provide for them, who would protect them, who would heal them from their diseases, who would raise up their nation back into its rightful high place. And they were excited about that. We do the same thing, right? When God drops a, a, a blessing right in the middle of your life, right in your, in your lap, thank you, Lord. We praise him, right? God is good. When he, when he bails you out and delivers you from a a struggle from a problem. Oh, thank you, Lord. I didn't know how I was going to get out of that one. When he, when he brings something good into our lives, well, we're happy to let people know that we're Christians. That's, that's easy, right? We, we praise him. We thank him. We worship him. We give him glory when things are good, when he does what we want. But what about when he doesn't provide a blessing in your life that you were hoping for, maybe even counting on. What about your, your friend that has cancer? What about your loved one that just passed away? What about your rising costs and your not rising income? Is what's in your heart and what comes off your lips praise and thanks and honor and glory then too? Or do you praise him kind of like the crowds? We'll praise you when it's convenient, when it's good for me, but, but when you don't do what I want, God, well, maybe I won't praise you. I don't have a lot to thank you for right now, so I'm not going to. I'm just going to stand here, and I'm going to cross my arms, and you let me know when you're going to do something good, and then I'll praise you. Sounds kind of like opposition, doesn't it? Sounds kind of like a, a real passive way, a, a quiet way, maybe even a subtle way. But I'm going to give you the silent treatment, God. Let me know when you want to do something good in my life, then I'll be sure to praise you. The problem is that that misses the point, doesn't it? That kind of opposition, just as the, the opposition that those Pharisees had telling Jesus to, to quiet his disciples, both of those completely missed the point of why Jesus came. See, Jesus came to take care of our problem. Singular. Problem. He didn't come to, to get rid of cancer. He didn't come to take care of our debt. Those aren't actually our problems. 
Those are symptoms of the problem. All of the pain, all of the suffering, all the difficulty in life, it's all simply the result of, of sin. Our, our failure to live the way God says, our, our brokenness that, that is in our lives that we show and the brokenness that's in our hearts that opposes us, that makes us opposed to God. Jesus didn't come to just, to just take care of our symptoms, though. He came to get rid of the problem. He came to bring a cure. That's why he came. In just five days, there were going to be some of those people that lined the street, the path into Jerusalem, that were shouting his praises. And I'm guessing we're shouting insults as he hung on the cross. There were going to be people who were were praising him and hailing him as a king who were wondering, wait a minute, I thought he was the Savior and now he's dead. How How can he fix my problems if he's dead? See, we tend to think the same way, right? Because we we miss why Jesus came. We think he came to fix the immediate symptoms, the difficulties of life. And really, he came to fix the problem that separates us from God. He came to take all of our opposition, all of our sin, all of our our standing opposed and pushing back and questioning and challenging and, and doing the opposite of what God wants. He came to take all of that and to die, to give his perfect life for it. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see a rebellious opponent opposed to him, he sees a holy child of God. He sees someone that he dearly loves, someone that's been washed in the blood of Christ, someone that is holy and perfect. That's you. See, that's why Jesus came. What a beautiful thing that is that we, it's so important that we remember Right? Our, our third takeaway reminds us of the difficulty. It's that my unwillingness to trust God and my struggle to praise him all the time shows my opposition. Because let's be honest, we don't, do we? But that's why Jesus came. He came not to say, oh, I'll, I'll show you a better way to trust me. He came to take away all the times that we fail. He came to fix our problem. And that's why when those Pharisees said, hey, tell your disciples to shh, Jesus said, you don't understand. He's the king of heaven and earth. There is nothing, no living creature, and even Jesus says, no inanimate thing, no creation, even the stones will cry out that his praises must be sung. Because he's the one who made everything. He's the one who saved us all. He's the one who gives us hope. And so he says, if you stop praising, something else is going to cry out. And he's reminding us that, that our lips were made to praise him. That when we give up opposition, that is the natural response. When we stop thinking about our plans and our desires and our wants, when we start understanding and trusting God and relying on him, what flows from our hearts and comes off our lips is praise and thanks and glory to God. 
That's our last takeaway this morning, that Jesus is worthy of my praise every single minute of my life because he saved me for eternity. So whether your life is in this exact moment as as good as you can imagine it could be or whether it is really rough or somewhere in between, See, understand, you have a reason to praise God. You have a reason to praise God because he is the king. He's the king of heaven and earth who's ruling all things. And understand, he loves you. And he gave his life to save you. To give you hope. So that no matter how difficult or desperate things get, there's always hope. Because Jesus is my king. And that is never going to change. Not even for eternity. And because Jesus is my king, I have reason to praise him. Dear friends, give up opposition. Let your hearts be filled with praise and thanks for the God who gave up everything to save you. And let your lips flow with praises as we head through this holy week and for your whole life because we were designed to give glory and praise to our God. Amen.